Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, one of the big old topics on the American Shoreline all the time is resiliency, a big buzzword today. I hear it all the time. We do, and it's supposed to represent the capacity of communities to respond to climactic and other events that can cause damage to communities, how they recover. But the term resiliency is really a bigger notion than that and certainly isn't limited to the coast. Yeah, today we're going to get up into the atmosphere and look at the big picture of how we think about uh, problems how we think about how we solve those problems, how we prioritize how we solve those problems. And uh, Peter, I'm really looking forward to it. We've got a great guest lined up. We do indeed. So joining us on this podcast today is uh, Storm Cunningham. And Storm is the executive director of the Reconomics Institute in Washington, D.C. He's also the editor of the Revitalization Journal and an author uh, of three books, uh, the first in 2002 called The Restoration Economy. In 2008, he came out with Rewealth. And in 2020, his latest book, uh, Reconomics, The Path to Resilient Prosperity. And this is the subtitle, The Guide to Healing Economies, Societies, and Nature for policymakers, real estate investors, and entrepreneurs. That's an interesting title. That's a rather grand it is. subject. It is. But that's the purpose of today's show. We are going up, up, up into yeah. the atmosphere and looking at these problems from maybe a different point of view. Yeah. And I'm really looking forward to it, Peter. Let's have a quick word from our sponsors and then get into the interview. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by... LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA.com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at CoastalNewsToday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Well, Storm, thank you for taking time out of your busy day at the... uh, uh, at the Reconomics Institute in D.C. to join us on the American Shoreline podcast. Hey, Peter and Tyler. Thanks for having me on your show. Well, you know, we do cover coastal resiliency planning. It's a hot topic on the American shoreline. Billions of dollars are being spent on community revitalization in addition to environmental restoration all around the American shoreline. And uh, one of the things, Storm, that struck me in looking at the materials that you have produced, uh, and particularly your latest book, uh, Reconomics, The Pathway to Resilient Prosperity, was this statement. And I wanted to start with this. Um, in the description of the book, you, uh, the assertion is made that over 95% of community revitalization and resiliency projects fail to meet their goals. 
That's an astonishing rate of ineffectiveness. Um, can you talk about why why is that true? Is that true? That's a stunning statistic. Yeah, it's uh, it is rather shocking, and uh, I've probably been exposed to more revitalization and resilience, failure and success stories than maybe anybody on the planet, because as a professional speaker for the last 20 years, I've spent my life in revitalization, restoration, regeneration, redevelopment conferences, summits, planning meetings all over the world. And for every talk I give, I normally hear at least a dozen. So I've just heard these constant stories of here's why we succeeded, here's why we failed. And I've been looking for commonalities. And when I say they failed, as you said, I said they, they failed to meet their goals. It doesn't necessarily mean they failed outright, although a huge number, a shocking number, have actually uh, failed outright. But very few, pathetically few, uh, come close to meeting their real goals. Normally what they do is lower their goals over time as the project uh, obviously is not going to pay off. So you don't really hear about, people don't, cities don't announce their failures. They announce their successes. Uh, but when a plan, when they fail to implement a, implement a plan, when they uh, fail to reach their goals in a revitalization resilience uh, project, you don't hear about it because that's, that's not good uh, ink for the mayor or the governor or whoever's behind it. So what I found were the two primary reasons for this uh, horrendous rate of failure is number one, lack of a strategy. And I'm not just talking about a bad strategy. I'm talking about a total lack of strategy. Most places they'll do a visioning session. They come up with a nice vision and they go straight into writing a plan. And uh, so the strategy whose sole function is to help ensure success is missing. And the other reason is lack of process. Uh, virtually anybody uh, who's involved in the production of anything on a regular basis whether it's a farmer producing corn or a manufacturer producing peanut butter or cars or clothing or somebody in government producing tax revenues, if they reliably produce anything, they know you have to have a process. And when you look at community revitalization and resilience programs, not the projects, but the programs, the overall initiatives, there's no process to it. You get down to the project level, then you've got engineers and architects and landscape architects and ecological restoration people, each of whom has a, an actual process for what they're doing. So the projects can succeed, but the overall initiative fails. That's an interesting observation. So what you're saying is, and this is important for coastal communities, but obviously not limited to the coastal areas, but for our listenership who are engaged in revitalization and uh, resiliency project planning and execution. Um, you make a distinction here between revitalization, a specific project versus a program, and that the lack of strategy and the lack of a clear process uh, really hinders the effectiveness of the program. Can you expand on that a little bit? What do you mean by the lack of a strategy? What's the missing piece that your observation in history shows? Well, the whole purpose of a strategy, as I mentioned, is to help ensure success. And the strategy is basically the flip side of the vision. 
having a vision without a strategy is a sure path to failure, but having a strategy without a vision means you might have a really excellent way of getting somewhere mysterious. <laughs> you know, you, right. you, you know how to get there, but you don't know where you're going. Uh, so the key is to have a clear vision, which is basically a, a cohesive set of goals. And then the strategy's purpose is to overcome the primary obstacles to achieving the vision. It doesn't have to address everything. It's not a plan. But if your primary obstacle to achieving your vision is financial, then the strategy would focus on that. If this primary obstacle is political or stakeholder engagement oriented, uh, then it focuses on, on that. Uh, you know, whatever the primary obstacle is going, going to be, uh, the strategy is the concise uh, embodiment of a technique that will help you overcome those obstacles. And I say concise because the primary function of a strategy is to guide decision-making towards success. So if you can't hold that strategy in your head, it's not going to guide your decision-making from day to day. Strategy shouldn't be uh, multiple pages sitting on a shelf. It, it has to be short enough to remember. You know, I, there's a, there's a lot to unpack there, Storm, and uh, I, I really am looking forward to getting into this conversation. Ladies and gentlemen, you can already see we're, we're talking about uh, kind of this stratification of the way that we think about uh, tackling the big problems of our society and the planet and how we exist on it. And Storm, before we go any deeper in that, I'd like to just quickly do a little, learn a little bit more about you and your your background here. And, um, you know, you're, you're obviously a person who pays a great deal of attention to uh, strategies and um, visions and how how those things are articulated. Could you take us back to your kind of roots in thinking about these things? I know that you have a background in uh, the uh, special forces in the military. Um, tell us a little bit about your kind of initiation into thinking along these lines. Well, that's truly ancient history. <laughs> you know, we're talking uh, way back into the very earliest uh, of the 70s uh, while Vietnam was still going on. And uh, yeah, I was on I was in the uh, spe 7th Special Forces group um, and uh, as you might know, Green Berets operate in 12-man teams, usually behind enemy lines. And it's traditionally been considered the most efficient and effective uh, military organization ever created. And it was actually based, if you want to go way back, on uh, Francis Marion's, um, you know, the Swamp Fox down in South Carolina, huh. uh, who, who used... Uh, Native American tactics, which is why the Native Americans, uh, before the disease wiped them out, while the Native Americans were winning all the battles. And uh, so the special forces model is primarily based on what they call unconventional warfare, which is a force multiplier, multiplier uh, where a 12-man team is uh, able to train and equip a 4,000-man guerrilla battalion. So they're primary, primarily teachers, not fighters. Uh, you know, if you want somebody who's purely about fighting, that would be Army Rangers, Navy SEALs, somebody like that. They're involved in what's called direct action. But uh, unconventional warfare, this uh, training of uh, 
local guerrillas involves living with the people. And it's a strategy that was invented by the CIA. Um, some people say it's the best idea, best, uh, you know, best idea the CIA ever had. Uh, other people say it's the only good idea the CIA ever had. Um, but it really worked. It worked really well in Vietnam, where the teams uh, lived and worked with the Montagnard guerrillas. And the key thing there is when you've got such limited resources, you've got 12 guys behind enemy lines, uh, you, you can't really make many mistakes. And uh, so strategy is really, really important. That people talk about tactics all the time, but they always forget about the overall strategy, which encompasses all the tactics. Uh, to bring it a little further forward, a good example of a lack of strategy was when uh, uh, Mark Zuckerberg... Um, Very much forward. What's that? Very much forward, we're bringing it. Yeah, right. Uh, this goes back just a few years, but Mark uh, put $110 million, I think it was, into revitalizing the school system of Newark, New Jersey. And right. the amount of money was appropriate. It could actually do uh, some really good things. And uh, he had good engagement from local uh, uh leaders and you know everything seemed to be set for success they only forgot one thing a strategy and because they never identified what the primary obstacle to success would be and the primary obstacle success to success turned out to be how do you alter the existing teachers contracts which are very specific about the level of pay because one of the primary things they were going to do to improve the level of uh, uh, the quality of education was to pay the good teachers better. And because they didn't identify the primary obstacle, they had no strategy for overcoming that obstacle, and the entire thing was a waste and a total failure. Wow. So let's talk about, this is really interesting, and I, I get coming out of the special forces, being embedded in a community uh, and doing the training, as you said, a force multiplier that really... Uh, identification of the barriers, as you say, the obstacles to success, the skill involved in both developing and executing the strategy is key. How do you go from that universe of thinking and training in the military to what you've become over the last 25 years, which is a specialist in community revitalization um, and resiliency? What was that transition? What brought you to that subject area as opposed to any other number of subject it is, areas. It's an could, interesting path to, yeah. to go yeah. from point A to point B, Storm. Yeah. How did that happen? How did that happen? Uh, well, I've always been uh, given to drastic changes. I'm not an incremental kind of guy. Um, <laughs> because if you step back uh, one step from my Green Beret days, I spent the previous three years hitchhiking around the world as a hippie seeking, seeking the truth. Wow. Wow. A Green Beret hippie. I love that. That's yep. a good combination. <laughs> so I literally, when I hitchhiked back from Nepal and uh, India uh, back to New Jersey, where my parents were living at the time, uh, this we're talking 1971 now, um, just before I enlisted, I literally went from hippie arriving back at my parents' house in December 
of uh, 1970 to Green Beret, or at least in the Army, wow. uh, by February of 72. So it was wow. about an eight-week transition from Hippie to Green Beret. Yeah. So the transition from Special Forces to becoming what I've sometimes been called the re-guy, um, all things re, redevelopment, revitalization, regeneration, restoration, re um, really started in the mid-90s. Well, no, it really goes back before that because I was on a scuba team in Special Forces and uh, you know fell in love with scuba diving and have stayed with it all my life. And I noticed along the way that every time I re returned to a favorite reef, uh, it was dead or dying. Mm -hmm. And back in the late 80s, I was invited to come down and help out this German scientist in Jamaica who had invented a reef restoration technology. Really fascinating stuff. Hmm. And it was literally the first reef restoration technology ever. And he needed uh, divers to volunteer divers to help him install these things on the ocean floor. So I went down there and spent a week with him uh, doing that and also uh, dove around some of his previous installations and saw these what had been dead zones uh, just flourishing with life in just in an incredibly short period of time. Huh. And you think of reefs as being something that's almost impossible to restore since they take thousands of years to aggregate. And here were these totally devastated reefs coming back to life in a matter of months. <laughs> so that was the first, that planted the seed that we don't have to be satisfied with merely halting the damage or slowing down the rate at which we destroy the world, that we can actually restore the world. Uh, that was a real eye-opener for mm. me. And it, later on, I became the director of strategic initiatives at the Construction Specifications Institute in Alexandria, Virginia, which at the time was a technical society of about 18,000 architects, engineers, product manufacturers. And... Uh, the it, I had been self-employed prior to that, and the idea of a nine-to-five job, uh, I got into rather hesitantly, thinking I'm probably going to go crazy in that kind of environment. So I decided I needed an exit strategy, and from day one, 1996, I started writing a book, figuring that would be a nice platform to launch myself hmm. on in whatever my next step would be. I see. I ended up spending six years at CSI and spent that whole six years writing the book. I'd come in at six o'clock every morning. And that book the was book the, the Restoration Economy, which came out in yeah. 2002. Exactly. Yeah. So I uh, started writing the book at six o'clock every morning then switch over to my CSI duties at nine o'clock. And what happened was about a year into writing the book, I discovered that it was boring me to death. Uh, and the problem was that it was about sustainability, which at the time was one of my chief passions. And I realized I don't really have that much new to say about sustainability. There are hundreds of books out there on the subject. Okay. So I took a look at all the research I had done and I separated it into two piles on my desk. One pile of boring stuff and one pile of exciting stuff and i noticed in the smaller <laughs> exciting stuff that's a good that everything way. had re in it it was all about restoration revitalization regeneration you know redevelopment remediation 
uh, replenishment, reuse, repurposing. Okay. Uh, and that, that it, it, the lights went on. I said, forget about sustainability. Who wants to sustain this mess? You know, the world's in a horrible condition. You know, let's talk about restoration. And that's when the uh, restoration economy was born. I see. And that answers my question that making that transition in, into this notion of the restoration economy, if I, if I can summarize and, and, and please add to this, but the restoration economy book in 2002 postulated the notion that the, there is tremendous economic opportunity in the restoration of the physical, natural, and artificial assets that we have in societies all around the world, um, and that that opportunity should economically that should drive this industry forward. Is that a fair summary of the thesis of that book? The restoration. Yeah, absolutely. Economy? It's okay. you know some some of the this what I call restorative development uh, is ancient. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. people have been renewing their infrastructure and restoring historic buildings for millennia. So the when it was dealing with some of these older forms of restorative development what it was documenting was the sudden growth the fact that things like historic restoration of buildings and adaptive reuse were just exploding yeah i started writing it like i said in 1996 so this is early days for some of these uh, newer industries like brownfields uh, remediation redevelopment that had just been invented at the EPA the year before 1995 mm. so some of these were brand new and other ones were old industries that were growing really really fast but the key was that they were not just improving the old model if you look at economic development you can divide it into three sections uh, first you've got the new development which is how all civilizations get started that's where you, you chop down the forest to make farms, then you pave over the farms to make cities. You know, the, the sprawl-based uh, economic development, which is fine. There's nothing evil about that. That's, like I said, how you build your civilization in the first place. And then as you're doing that, the second mode of, of the economic development evolves, which is maintenance and conservation. The maintenance of the built environment, the conservation of what's left of your natural environment. Mm-hmm. And if you look at most of our reporting systems and accounting systems, those are the only two modes that are really measured and reported on. But the third mode, the critical mode for us in this 21st century, is the third mode, uh, the mode of uh, restorative development, you know, where you're repurposing and renewing and reconnecting all of those assets that are now decrepit or obsolete or isolated or dying. Uh, that you know, that's where the economic growth uh, of the next several centuries is going to be based. And the great thing about restorative development is you can't do too much of it. I mean, you can do it badly, but assuming you do it well, you you, you can't do too much of it. I mean, I, like I said, I've been doing these uh, talks and workshops all around the world for 20 years now, and I have yet to go to a community where people said. Oh my God! You know, we we got to slow down this river restoration project. The water is getting way too clean, and we got far too many fish now. <laughs> or, oh my God, we got to slow down this brownfields project uh, program here. I mean, we're running out of contaminated sites. Mm-hmm. Or, yeah. oh my God, we got to slow down this revitalization program. Our, our quality of life and our economy are getting way too good. You know, you just don't hear complaints like that. You cannot re- restore and revitalize too much, but you can certainly sprawl and, you know, extract your resources too much. What are the uh, storm? What are the 
changes in the way that we think about our built environment from the 90s when you kind of started this odyssey of thinking about uh, being the re-guy and 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 reframing you might say your uh your career and your your kind of purpose um what are the how how are we thinking about this differently socially i'm i'm curious i mean a lot has changed i mean it seems like like socially we have come to into a a, a new chapter here at least with climate change but i'm curious if you could take us back to uh the 90s where we were then and where we are now well one good example of how things have changed is uh, I had a chapter on what I called then restorative agriculture, which uh, these days is called regenerative agriculture. But it might have been the first hardcover book to ever actually document the rise of regenerative agriculture in any substantial way. It, you know, it, people like the Rodale Institute have been experimenting with it for decades. But it really was just starting to push its nose out uh, and gain a little bit of attention when I started writing the restoration economy. And you know, at that point, I defined restorative agriculture or regenerative agriculture as agriculture that rebuilds the quality and quantity of your topsoil and also restores the surrounding environment, you know, such as native pollinators, the watershed, all the things that uh, can actually make the agriculture more effective and efficient and it was growing based on that definition quite nicely for a decade or so and then about six years ago maybe five years ago i attended an announcement at the national press club uh, in washington dc where it was announced that new research had shown that regenerative agriculture sequesters more carbon than reforestation in fact four times more carbon than reforestation and all of a sudden, this extra bullet was added uh, to the arguments uh, for why we should be farming in a regenerative way, because now it was no longer just a matter of healing the extractive mode of industrial agriculture that we had had before, where, for instance, out in the Midwest, where they used to have 15 feet of topsoil, and it's now down to one or two inches as a result of this extractive farming we've been doing. Right. Uh, you know, now we can not only rebuild our topsoil and restore native pollinators and watersheds and all that, but we can actually restore the climate in the process of creating our food. Mm. And that, that's a major change from the 90s. So um, there's a lot to talk about there, but um, it is interesting because, you know, I think about the 90s and I mean, I'm just going to breeze through this. I know that there <laughs> this was a crazy period of time here, but, you know, there's the... Al Gore, of course, I'm, I was a kid, but, uh, I remember an inconvenient truth coming out and I remember kind of the beginnings of, uh, carbon, the, the carbon crisis kind of entering the public lexicon around that period of time. Uh, and what's interesting is it seems to me as an American, I like to drive around the country, Peter, we like to cruise around Texas. And when we do, I have not seen a proliferation of restorative agricultural, um, uh, big farms, you know, I, when I drive around big farms, what I'm seeing a lot of is GMO and fancy tractors. And I have to say, I, I don't believe that we're necessarily doing it the, the restorative way at this moment. It seems like we had a fork in the road and we went the other direction. But I hear what you're saying, Storm. Uh, having that carbon bullet on the list 
introduces a new existential thing. Like we have to address this problem. And I'm, it reminds me of your yeah. Green Beret days. Is there a benefit to having from a planning strategy perspective? You're 12 men behind enemy lines. You have, we, now we have a carbon crisis here. I, I, I realize there might feel different. Are you behind enemy lines? <laughs> well, we are, we, we, maybe we, we are, are socially. Yeah. I'm wondering, um, what, is there a benefit to having that carbon? You know, is it is it the existential element of the carbon crisis that makes that bullet force us to have to look at regenerative agriculture more seriously? And is there is there an opportunity there? Yeah, actually, the carbon sequestration aspect of it is the one that has got the Fortune 500 companies on board. Uh, you know, General Mills uh, has already dedicated uh, over a million acres in the coming few years to regenerative agriculture. I mean, this is almost all the major food brands now have regenerative agriculture uh, aspects to them. Uh, you look at labels now and labels that used to say organic on them now say regenerative organic. Hmm. And it's so, yeah, that, that, that was the magic bullet that, uh, that really did bring it into the, the big time because everybody's looking for ways to, you know, to restore the climate. You know, they're starting to realize that, you know, low carbon is nice but not enough. Zero carbon is nicer, but still not enough. Right. We've got to go carbon negative. Yeah. If we don't suck the carbon out of the atmosphere, we're never going to restore the climate. Yeah, I, I believe that's true. And some of the interviews that we've done have emphasized uh, that necessity of, of going on into negative carbon, uh, an idea that I don't think has penetrated particularly uh, into the political world at this moment, but I do believe it's accurate. Um, I want to ask you about the world in 2008 when your second book came out called Rewealth and and really emphasized the economic opportunities of this idea of restorative, resilient uh, economic models as opposed to the extractive uh, approach, uh, historically true. Now up to the current book on reconomics, uh, or reconomics, I'm sorry, I keep saying it wrong, reconomics, <laughs> the path to resilient prosperity. Were you, are you satisfied, I guess what I'm asking is, between the book in 2008, Rewealth, and the 2020 book on Reconomics, uh, did we make meaningful progress in the direction that you expected, or have you been disappointed in the process of restorative economics and restorative programs and projects? Uh, no, I've been very happy with the growth of each of the eight sectors that I described and documented in the restoration economy. Uh, I had four sectors on the natural side, which were fisheries, agriculture, watersheds, and ecosystems. And, and those are not scientific uh, separate separators. They were basically economic separators. Those are the type yeah, of projects that were getting funded. Uh, and then on the built side, you had brownfields, infrastructure, heritage, and catastrophe. And all of them uh, have been growing like gangbusters, maybe faster than I expected. And I was fairly optimistic uh, when I put out the numbers in the, in the first book. But uh, and un unfortunately, maybe the fastest growing one is catastrophe uh, reconstruction. Right. Um, so, yeah, the... Maybe the bi biggest changes have been, just been coming about uh, 
really since I started writing Reconomics uh, over the past uh, five years or, or so, is that the, some of the lessons really started to sink in at the institutional level. You know, for instance, uh, and, and the folks that I've been doing lectures for and workshop training, things like that, uh, they've been hearing the Reconomics content now for you know, half a dozen years because uh, they, they've heard it while I was researching it and writing it rather than having to wait for the book to come out. And one organization, for instance, that's transformed itself as a result of some of the things I put out. For instance, one of the things I document in the book is what I call the three re strategy, which is the most universal and successful strategy I've seen for bringing places back to life. Okay. Uh, basically, it's just Tell three us. words, repurposing, renewing, and reconnecting. Uh, virtually every city on the face of the earth now is covered in obsolete or decrepit or inappropriate assets that need a new purpose. And you have to find that you have to repurpose that asset before you can raise money to convert it to whatever you want to start using it for, like mm. converting that old elevated railway line in Manhattan to the High Line Park, which right. is the most successful single project they've ever done. Fantastic project. Um, and uh, so that's repurposing, renewing, reconnecting. You, know, you, you repurpose it to mm -hmm. raise the money to renew it. And after you renew it, you reconnect it, which is exactly the story of the High Line. And uh, <clears throat> which brought the whole Lower East Side of uh, oh, West Side of Manhattan back to life, and the uh, that three re strategy was adopted by one of my clients, uh, the uh, Kalamazoo County Land Bank out in Michigan. You know, if you're familiar with land banks, you know probably know that they were birthed in Michigan. You know, Michigan is the home of the land bank. There are I now no hundreds idea. of land banks uh, all around the United States. Uh, land banks basically are a bank of decrepit or vacant properties. Um, and uh, so they're supposed to turn them into revitalization. But what happened is most land banks just turned out to be kind of transaction oriented. You know, they get a bunch of derelict properties in and they just trying to find a buyer for them and get yeah. them off the books. Uh, which was not the purpose of the land banks at all originally, as they were originally envisioned. They were supposed to be a community revitalization uh, organization. Hmm. So when the uh, Kalamazoo County Land Bank brought me in, I introduced them to this 3 re strategy that was working so well around the world. And they said, OK, well, that's what we're going to do. In fact, they adopted it as, as a slogan. If you look at their annual reports uh, right under their name, it says repurpose, renew, reconnect. And it has absolutely transformed the organization. Now they're they're doing things that land banks never did before. They're doing brownfields. You know, they turned an old brownfield to an insane asylum that was torn down and covered in asbestos. They turned this brownfield into an affordable senior living center, a beautiful one that's actually got a restored, ecologically restored prairie in the center of it. Huh. You know, so they're combining, integrating all these different forms of restorative development. And as a result of that kind of leadership, the executive director of the Kalamazoo County Land Bank, Kelly Clark, uh, became the executive director of the Michigan Association of Land Banks. Uh, so that just an example of you know, one organization that was trans transformed by the three re strategy and is now transforming all the land banks in Michigan seems to have uh, bared fruit and uh, but I want to focus uh, a little bit just on the the first re uh, the repurpose re 
And uh, because I find that, well, I think that all three re's actually mean more than maybe meets the eye. But um, repurposing is an interesting concept, Storm, because um, it kind of involves like recategorizing. Here's another re recategorizing in the mind, in the social mind, what a an asset even is, how to define it, how to to, to ask yourself even what what are we trying to uh what is the purpose of this i mean that is a deep damn question how mm-hmm. do you when you stepped in here uh on maybe on this specific project or generally i mean how do you how, how do you approach that i mean where where do you start well when i first got into it when when i first formulated the three re strategy not that I really had to invent it. It was really became obvious when I looked at the most successful projects I'd seen around the world and noticed that that's what they were all doing. Now, if you asked any of those project managers uh, if they were following a strategy of repurposing, renewing, reconnecting, they would have said no. Uh, they didn't really. They were doing it intuitively. Nobody had given convergent them a evolution. Yeah. So it it was it's just basically common sense. If you've got a if you've got a, a, a derelict property, uh, obviously, uh, you know if you're going to put it to use, it's probably not going to be the same use as before. If it was a former manufacturing site that's now contaminated with mercury and lead, you're probably not going to put another factory on there that's going to contaminate it with more mercury and lead. So that that part like, makes sense, Storm. But but where it gets interesting and particularly. Uh, challenging i suppose you could say but also i would also i would add most most uh compelling and interesting is when you take the old plant and then you like turn it into a wild river or something like when Mm -hmm. you take it and you completely change i mean on the american shoreline we often hear this peter with regard to uh managed retreat i think you could say where um, we we hear advocates for retreat arguing that, hey, the highest and best use of this coastal space is to allow it to return to its kind of natural ebb and flow mm-hmm. of the coastal area. And but what you'll hear often from opponents of that is like, well, hold on a second. I mean, there's real estate taxes here. There are uh, benefits to society by having that area developed. So those are two opposite ends of the spectrum storm. And Somewhere, I guess, in the middle is where the answer would be. Uh, but I'm, you know, yeah, it's a good question. When it when it's when it's something more dramatic than you know turning a factory into housing or something like that. How how do you how would you advise kind of thinking big? Yeah, it's it's always difficult when you use the word retreat in America because Americans uh, we have don't. this image of themselves as people who never retreat. That's what um, that's very true. So uh, it's always, uh, I find it best to stick with. Uh, Maybe we should call it an ocean attack. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Americans don't yeah. retreat. That's that's not a good. Uh, we yeah, need to switch teams. On that. We need to switch language on that. But. Yeah, I mean we've done it plenty of times. We just don't acknowledge it. No. Um, so the uh, it really started not so much on the coasts, uh, but along the rivers, especially the Mississippi River. Um, several decades ago when people realized that uh, one of the reasons the cities were getting flooded was because they had lost their wetlands and the federal government uh, created a program to start converting some of those wet uh, some of the farms 
uh, back into wetlands. And it made a lot of sense to the farmers and ranchers because they were tired of getting flooded out. And uh, the, it, it, the program actually worked quite well. So the, the precedent was there so that once people started acknowledging sea level rise, uh, and once the sea level rise forced them to acknowledge it, um, <clears throat> then it became a matter of survival in some cases where, you know, you take away the federal uh, flood insurance and all of a sudden uh, the decision to move from an area that's flooded on a regular basis becomes pretty obvious. The only reason mm -hmm. a lot of these places are staying where they are is because of this stupid flood insurance. Um, so if we stop, stop subsidizing stupid locations, then, um, you know, those decisions become a lot easier. And it's not just a matter of turning communities back into wetlands, but they are doing that. You know, you go up to New Jersey, there are several communities now that are basically uh, being moved further from the coast and uh, their, pre their previous footprints being turned into uh, not just wild areas, uh, sometimes it's turned into parks. Mm -hmm. You know, places are uh, actually designing parks now on coastal areas that are designed to be flooded. Right. So you're not fighting the flood, you're not building a wall around the park, you're just uh, doing the landscape architecture in a way that uh, right. acknowledges that it will be flooded. Yeah, the Danish model, invite the water in and create a space for it and make and be compatible with that natural force is very much an emerging approach on coastal land management. Um, Jiu-jitsu, you might say. Yeah, it's not easy to do. Uh, the, I'm interested in, in the politics of, of these, this transformative thinking that you're suggesting should occur and the book that your your latest book uh, includes a guide uh, for policymakers, real estate investors, and entrepreneurs. I think that's just an interesting three categories. To I would pick. love to go to a bar with with these three individuals. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, it may be that uh, we uh, don't recognize the economic opportunity that's involved in restorative thinking. Uh, but it seems the political process, as Tyler mentioned, is pretty vested in this notion that when you've got built environments and communities that uh, doing anything to make that less dense or less valuable is somehow an, an economic negative. And I get the feeling, Storm, that part of the point you're making is that there is money to be made. There is an economic opportunity here that is not being understood and is being missed. Uh, could you expound on that a little bit? Is that is that part of what you believe that the history yeah. shows here? Yeah, uh, actually, uh, Poland provides a really good historical example of the power of focusing exclusively on restoration. Uh, you might know that uh, <clears throat> at the end of World War II, Warsaw was the most thoroughly devastated city on the planet. And uh, the, I mean, it was devastated, you know, first by the Germans, then by the Russians, and finally by us. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it became a battleground for everybody. And there was quite literally nothing left of the city. Uh, the infrastructure, the buildings, I mean, it, it was all gone. The schools, the hospitals, uh, just wiped clean. And they, they, as a result, had no economy. And what happened was they decided, okay, we're going to rebuild this city. Everybody 
uh, got involved in, in rebuilding. They took out all these old photographs of how the city looked before, and they quite literally rebuilt their city center. When you go into downtown, the historic center of, of Warsaw, everything you're looking at there that looks so charming and old is, is only uh, you know several decades old. And the interesting thing that happened here was that cities all over Europe were devastated after World War II, obviously, and the restoration, rebuilding, reconstruction expertise that all of these citizens in Poland, who most of whom had no previous experience in construction whatsoever, uh, they were now experts at rebuilding a war-torn city. So once they got done with Warsaw, they hired themselves out all over Europe, and the money that they sent back to their families is what kickstarted the Polish economy. Hmm. So it became quite literally a restoration economy. And there are a lot of ex uh, opportunities around the world right now with places that have been severely damaged or that obviously are going to be severely damaged if they're on the coast, places with you know insurmountable problems if things don't change drastically, who could use the repurposing of their entire city, the renewing of their city, the reconnection of their city uh, as a way to make their city or their region an actual Silicon Valley of global restoration. There is huh. none right now. There's no place where people can go to say, well, this is where I go to learn how to restore this, that, or the other. This is where I go to learn how to revitalize places. You know, huh. If you just had one of these critical mass situations where they used the renewal of their city to uh, concentrate expertise in all the component disciplines, architecture, engineering, economics, you know, the whole works, um, it could be. It could turn a potential disaster into uh, a whole new birth. Huh. Let me ask you. And you use the example of Warsaw and the reconstruction of the great cities of Europe post World War II. Uh, and you mentioned that they they for the town center they rebuilt the communities to uh, look like they were prior to the war. When you look at those restoration actions in in european cities post world war ii do you see repurposing do you see reconnecting did they hit the target did they actually change the way the city developed was built and operated or i'm, I'm assuming that they that those are examples are useful because they simply didn't reconstruct it exactly the way it was was there a transformation oh, no. there that is, uh, yeah, the, that the Warsaw you? story was actually unique uh, most of the cities of Europe that rebuilt rebuilt horribly you know in this just uh, they ended up all looking like Soviet penitentiaries you know it's just concrete this that and the other and this brutalist style uh, that most of them are still trying to recover from uh, so, no, rebuilding the historic character of the city was something that very few cities did. Hmm. And Warsaw is benefiting from it tremendously. And the other cities are spending billions of dollars to undo the mistakes of how they rebuilt. But you, you mentioned my second book, Rewealth, the McGraw-Hill book in 2008 yeah. earlier. Uh, and I glossed over it then. But let me return to it for a yeah. second because... Uh, it gives, there's a case study in there on what was probably the earliest example of coastal resilience planning and redesign. 
a city that quite literally had to repurpose all of its lands and in order to renew itself and then reconnect itself. Uh, and that was Lisbon, Portugal. About 400 years ago, they had a horrendous earthquake and uh, a tsunami that wiped out uh, something like 60,000 people. And it was one of the reasons it was so devastating was because Lisbon had grown in a totally unplanned manner uh, laterally just along the coast. Uh, so virtually the entire city was exposed to that tsunami. And when the uh, Marquez de Pombal was given the job of re reconstructing the city, he very wisely decided that a much more resilient design would be to grow the city inland, which was sloping upwards. So as they went further inland, they were getting higher. Right. And uh, he reoriented basically the city in order to rebuild it in a resilient manner. And it worked beautifully. And one of the great things about the way he did it was that he valued the historic buildings. Uh, most of his contemporaries were saying, look, let's just do a tabla rasa approach here, wipe everything clean and start from scratch. And he was saying, no, we've got tons of gorgeous uh, old buildings here. You know, there's no need to destroy them. So he was actually one of the original historic preservationists on top of one of the first catastrophe uh, reconstructionists and uh, resilience designers. You know, I... I'm, I'm, I wanted to, to let's take this into modern times. And it is interesting that that the concepts of doing this properly, you can look back through history and see examples of where we've gotten it right. And plenty more examples of where the re restoration revitalization of communities uh, has not been done effectively or done well. But in in coastal news today and, and in the news these days, uh, the challenges facing coastal communities uh, are significant, and I'm going to just pull out the example of Charleston, South Carolina right now. That's a good one. That's a good one. A historic city, amazing, you know, uh, threatened by sea level rise. There's currently a, a planning process underway with the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers for a multi-billion dollar flood wall, basically, to surround the historic center of the city. Uh, it's not unique, the challenges that Charleston faces. It's true in other places on the Atlantic seaboard, particularly Norfolk, Virginia, comes to mind, or Miami, or even the city of New York, and multi-billion dollar projects planned also for the city of Houston. Uh, but when, when I'm thinking about, let's just talk a little bit about, uh, about Charleston. If you were advising them, recommending them, coming in as a, as a thinker to help them figure out the proper strategy, as you put it. to, to like, like the guy in Portugal. Yeah, like the Marquis de, what was his name? Ball? <laughs> I, yeah. the, the guy the in Portuguese, Lisbon? Uh, pronounce it Marquez. Marquez. But, uh, Marquez. Yeah. But... You know, what, what's important, Storm, when, when a city like Charleston is beginning the process of both protecting its historical assets and restoring its capacity as a, as a community, what are the tricks of the trade? And I think you have some keys to success suggestions in the Reconomics book, your latest. Yeah, now I should... Uh, preface anything I say here by pointing out, you know, I am not a designer, I'm not a restoration ecologist, you know, I'm not an architect, an engineer, uh, 
Yeah, you're just so a hippie I, green beret. <laughs> yeah. No, yeah, no, I'm kidding. More. I'm kidding. Um, yeah, I'm. I'm just. Uh, I don't do anything useful. I just basically <laughs> run around telling people uh, what other people have done. So, the uh, the in Charleston's case and most of the other cities that are in uh, very similar uh, situations, if they can't or won't relocate, uh, you know, obviously some kind of protective structure is going to be the only uh, possible way they can stay where they are. Uh, it's probably not going to be economically feasible to raise every building in the city. So assuming they can't raise everything, then the key there is to find a protective structure, design a protective structure that's regenerative. Hmm. And, you know, too many times, you know, civil engineers go for the simplest solution because they want, they don't want any surprises. I mean, that's the essence of the engineering yeah. discipline is to avoid surprises, yeah. which is wonderful. You know, if you're traveling over a, a bridge hundreds of feet in the air, the last thing you want is a surprise yeah. uh, or going through a tunnel. Uh, the problem comes when you start dealing with complex adaptive systems, you know, living systems like cities or ecosystems. That kind of approach is the kiss of death. Yeah. Uh, and uh, so there is a way that uh, a seawall, I hate to call it that, but uh, a protective structure. Yeah, barrier. There's uh, a variety of different yeah, approaches. Can can be regenerative. And it's not just a matter of doing a living shoreline sort of thing, which obviously would be uh, uh, the preference on the uh, ocean side of the wall. But the wall itself uh, could become a regenerative feature, yeah. uh, an actual attraction uh, that helps uh, attract people to the city and build the economy. Right. You know, it could it could be recreational. Uh, it could be you know public space. Uh, you know, there are just any number of ways that if you think about it holistically, that uh, you can build a wall around a city and uh, and okay. revitalize the city at the same time. You know, it does seem to be. A, one of the principles uh, that you're advocating here is this sense of hitting multi-purpose targets. Um, you know, I, I could not agree with you more. If I look at engineering solutions on the coast, uh, concrete barriers that are unsightly and separate people from the water and any connection to the natural environment are not uncommon. The Galveston seawall being an example from the early 1900s, the city still struggles uh, with how to work with that structure even today. Uh, but one of the reasons I think that drives us to those poor outcomes is the simple notion of cost or the understanding of how to conceptualize the project. You know, the Corps of Engineers says, you know, God darn it, our job is to offer protection against a hundred year storm. Here's the height of the wall. It needs to be this durable, this fat, this thick, this high, da, 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 da. There you go. That's what you've asked us to do. This notion of integrating community connectivity and, and other attributes, ecological restoration, habitat enhancement, sometimes gets left off the table why is that and how do you get people get it to, back on the table yeah how do you how do we get people to think about that more seriously in the fundamentals of these projects well it's actually pretty simple okay uh, I'm not, and 
remembering, of course, that simple is not synonymous with easy. But um, the, uh, the key is to actually have a process for regenerating the city. And the, the essence, you know, the, what I call the uh, minimum viable process, is uh, six steps. It's uh, and not necessarily steps in a particular order, but six elements. Uh, and the first two uh, elements are vision and strategy. So everything that follows is going to hinge on the vision. So that's where you've really got to come up with the right vision for what is this seawall uh, meant to accomplish. And like I said, a vision is a cohesive set of goals. So, you know, the, the word set is, is key there. You know, it's not a goal. Right. So if you just look at this Charleston seawall as a protective device, then it becomes an expense. That's all it is. Uh, if you add other goals to that until you have a cohesive vision for what you want the Charleston of the future to be, then all of a sudden those other possible functions for the wall, if properly designed, come in and it becomes a revitalizing force for the city that, oh, by the way, also happens to protect it from sea level rise. So that's all got to be captured in the vision. You know, then you come up with a strategy for achieving that. But by doing that, you've switched it from a pure expense to an investment in the future of the city. And that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, you have to ask the right question. And, and uh, I, I listened to a lecture years ago in Portland, Oregon, uh, about engineering failure. It was a, uh, one of the city's uh, sponsored lecture series. It was a packed house uh, at the auditorium. Really interesting speaker. And he was talking about engineering failure. And he described it as the failure to ask the right question. He said, if you don't ask the engineers to to serve multiple purposes, they will build you a structure that gives you the one answer you want. And the example he used, which I remember to this day, he said, in the original railroad engineering design to cross rivers and to cross uh, um, canyons, uh, the idea was to have a strong enough structure to support the locomotive and the train. And, it, and as we all know, if you have a tube an enclosed tube like you um, that is stronger than a and than a platform and so you ended up with very early designs that were steel encased boxes essentially and the problem was when the train went through uh, it would fill up with smoke and you couldn't breathe because they were belching smoke out of the chimney of the of the damn they were running on coal which ended up resulting in in different bridge design but he said the problem was that the the original request of the engineers was was not sufficiently broad in what the expectation was uh and it sounds like that what that's what you're saying here look we have to have a certain level of storm protection for these cities and i do agree with you that the relocation of charleston the relocation of new york city miami and new orleans is not going to happen i don't think that's that's realistic. Although, as a caveat, I'll say the one coastal city in the world that is being planned for relocation is the city of Jakarta, a city of 10.5 mm-hmm. yeah. million people. And they've, they're building a new city further inland and the relocation processes are beginning to uh, go forward in 2024. So other people are thinking about it. But to get back to my point, 
It seems the suggestion you're saying is, look, in the vision of the project and in the strategy to get you what you want, you have to include the proper elements, the full spectrum of interest, the community resilience and revitalization, connectivity, ecological health, and storm protection. That's the project. And a project design that doesn't hit those four or five goals is a failure fundamentally from the beginning is that kind of the point you're trying to make is we've got to think bigger and differently about what we're trying to do here yeah it's bigger and differently but it's also shifting it like i said from an expense to an investment you know in in other words from something we have to do to something we want to do and the uh you know uh, one of the big uh, primary challenges of any engineer any of the engineering disciplines, structural, electrical, whatever, is overcoming conflicting constraints. And when you come up with the right vision for a project like this, you should be transforming potential conflicting constraints into synergistic opportunities. So that now all these various agendas that you're trying to achieve, community revitalization, community protection, quality of life, you know, economic growth, all these sorts of things now become, or beautification, um, you know, they now become synergistic goals. And that makes the designer's job a heck of a lot easier. Uh, I actually misspoke earlier because uh, vision really isn't the first step of that six-step process. The very first step, ideally, is to create an ongoing program. Now, that mm-hmm. you got to get, uh, get one past of the reasons the project so idea. many places... Yeah, you got to get out of the project mentality. You're not going to revitalize the city just by having a bunch of disconnected projects. You got to have a revitalization program, hmm. and it's got to be ongoing. That's one of the big differences between a program and a project. Is a program doesn't have an endpoint, uh, a completion date, necessarily. I mean, it can, but it's usually very distant. And the by having a program, an ongoing program, and an organization, oftentimes a nonprofit organization to host it, then you provide the venue for all the different stakeholders to come in and uh, come up with this cohesive vision for the future. And then when a project comes along, like a seawall, you it's, it's you don't have to start from scratch to do this the hmm. visioning the stakeholder engagement all that sort of stuff you just take the project plunk it into this ongoing program which has a pre-existing vision and say okay now how does this fit the vision hmm. and you know what's the strategy for uh, achieving the vision and this project at the same time got it you know i think Storm, it's it's really interesting and compelling uh, thinking that you're doing, and it's absolutely timely given the billions of dollars in restoration funding that is going to the American shoreline right now all around America, a lot of it out of the catastrophe and disaster uh, thinking of Congress. But this notion of a more integrated, programmatic, multi-purpose uh, restoration and revitalization strategy is very timely. Uh, I, I hope the book is well read uh, by uh, advocates and coastal citizens and leaders around the country. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Storm Cunningham, the executive director of the Reconomics Institute in Washington, D.C., editor of the Revitalization Journal and author of Reconomics 
the path to resilient prosperity uh, came out in 2020. Uh, Storm, thank you for taking the time. And if people are interested in learning more about your work and how to get in touch with you, how can they do that? Well, probably the easiest thing would just be to go to stormcunningham.com and uh, all the information about the books and links to the various organizations I'm involved with, publications, everything is right there at stormcunningham.com, including my email address. Sounds perfect. Ladies and gentlemen, Storm Cunningham, thank you very much for sharing your insights uh, to our audience on the American Shoreline podcast and around the world. Really appreciate what you're doing, and I think you're on to something, folks. I think it's worth a look. Thanks a lot for taking the time, Storm. Thanks, Peter and Tyler. Enjoyed it.